welcome back to True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native, and thank you for tuning in. If you're new to the show, we cover crime from San Antonio, Texas exclusively. This week's story is about the day San Antonio was attacked. The day one man tried to destroy a beloved day with an attack on unsuspecting bystanders and policemen on the streets of San Antonio. He single-handedly tried to change San Antonio with his violence. But the question is, did he? But first, San Antonio, true crimes, this week. A couple weeks ago, I brought you the story of 23-year-old Michael Echenes. He was gunned down outside of his apartment complex by a man in a hoodie who ran away from the scene. Well, I'm happy to tell you that a 25-year-old man was charged with his murder. His name is Matthew Thomas Weising. He was taken into custody on Thursday, March the 24th. Apparently, it was all about jealousy. You see, Michael was dating Weising's ex, who had broken up with him just a few months earlier, and I guess he couldn't take it. Authorities believe that Michael was on his way to work as a teacher at Great Hearts Forest Heights when he was gunned down trying to get inside his vehicle. That same day, as the investigation continued, SAPD received a tip from one of Weising's family members sharing information on the murder confirming that he was involved. Police then located Weising and conducted a traffic stop on him, and he agreed to talk to SAPD detectives but he didn't really give him anything. He was later released that same day when they didn't have enough evidence to charge him. But as homicide investigators collected surveillance videos, they found Weising going to the crime scene and then fleeing after the shooting occurred. SAPD was able to obtain an arrest warrant for Weising, and he was taken into custody without incident. The family member also confirmed that a 9mm was missing from the house and police determined that a 9mm was used in the killing. The relative also stated that on the day of the homicide, Weising returned home and washed a dark-colored hoodie. The 9mm has not been recovered. It's a shame that Michael's life was taken over this. And Weising, now in custody, is waiting an indictment. We'll see if he's charged with capital murder. I'm just glad they got him. And lastly, a story I briefly talked about a few episodes past was about Diana Lowry. She was found dead in her home on Bayless Street where she had been sexually assaulted and strangled on January the 29th, 1987. Her boyfriend, Dale Andrew Martin had found her dead in the bathtub when he got home from work that evening. A police report said that Diana was wearing her bathrobe and socks and had abrasions on her face. That morning, when Dale had left for work, Diana was still asleep because she worked a late shift the night before. And when he got home, he tried to find her, calling out for her after finding the front door unlocked. 
He saw a bloody comforter and an unmade bed and followed an order that he would say later smelled like death that led him to the restroom. Investigators from the very beginning had their sights set on Larry Moore, but they didn't have the DNA evidence or the technology back then. But in July of 2005, investigators discovered that DNA evidence that linked him to the scene. He was indicted by a grand jury in September of 2005 and Diana Lowry's mother had urged for her daughter's killer to be brought to justice because she was dying from a terminal illness. But in 2007, a prosecutor asked a judge to dismiss the case because they needed to conduct further investigation. They probably didn't think they'd get the guilty verdict at that point. The case would go cold again until January of 2018. Unfortunately, Lowry's mother had passed but her niece called then district attorney Nicholas LaHood and he reviewed the case and determined there was enough evidence to prosecute. In 2018, 30 years after Diana Lowry's death, Moore was indicted again by a Bear County grand jury on capital murder charges. It's taken four years since then to get him into court, the pandemic and all. But last Friday on March the 25th, 35 years after Diana Lowry's death, a jury found 69-year-old Larry Moore guilty of capital murder charges in the Bear County's 175th District Court. He was sentenced to life, but due to the sentencing guidelines at the time of the murder, he will be eligible for parole in 40 years. We'll see if he makes it. None of Diana Lowry's family was in attendance, and you can't blame them. 35 years later, the pain is still there. It's real. They asked the DA's office to send them a letter letting them know of what happened in the case. At least at this point, they no longer have to worry if her killer will be free. At the end, I'm just glad he was brought to justice. Now hopefully we can get some more cold cases closed. All right, I think we're good. Here we go, episode 24. Warning, this story depicts accounts of violence and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised. It's occurred to me that we are 24 episodes into the show and I haven't really told you much about my city. Many of you listeners live right here in the 210, but we do have many listeners from around the country and around the world. So for those of you who don't know, San Antonio, Texas is a culturally rich South Central Texas city that's best known for the Battle of the Alamo. We are an ever-growing city 
due to our military bases and lower living costs that celebrated its 300th birthday just a few years back. If you ask anybody, San Antonio loves to party. We'll throw a party for anything. And unlike other major cities, we don't burn ours down to the ground when the Spurs win championships. The biggest party of the year, though, has been known as Fiesta San Antonio, which was named that in 1960. But the tradition began way back in 1861 when local women decorated carriages, baby buggies, and bicycles with live flowers. They met in front of the Alamo to remember those lost in the battle and threw flowers at one another, thus inspiring the parade named Battle of Flowers. It's the only parade in the United States that's produced entirely by women, holding that tradition from the beginning, second in size only to the Tournament of Roses parade. They wear bright yellow hats, so you never miss them. Through the years, the festivities grew and grew. I myself marched in the night parade known as the Fiesta Flambeau Parade as a child. I remember it was fun and exhausting. The Battle of Flowers Parade inspired many other events to join along the years. It will take me an hour to go over everything, from a night in old San Antonio to the carnival and the history of the river parade. There's just too much. Point is, we love it. Well, most of us. And it brings in millions of dollars to the city, local businesses, and the Conservation Society. But one year, in 1979, one man tried to take all that away. This is the story of the Battle of Flowers Sniper. Ira Atterbury was a troubled, lonely, recluse of a man with paranoia amongst other unknown mental illnesses. He was a 64-year-old World War II veteran and a man who wasn't well-liked. He was forced to leave his career as a truck driver after an accident, and it seemed to drive those illnesses to an extreme. He had received outpatient psychiatric treatment at a Missouri hospital where he was from, and he was supposed to be taking a maintenance dose of Thorazine. His paranoia had him believing the police were after him that they were stalking him and closing in. He was odd to anyone who interacted with him, and the ladies who served him at the bank often referred to him as Garlic Boy because of his pungent body odor. On April the 25th, 1979, Atterbury walked into the Bear Savings at McCreelis Mall, requesting that a relative's name to two accounts he owned, totaling $20,000. From there, he drove his motorhome, loaded with guns and ammunition, to the corner of Broadway and East Grayson Street, parking in front of Burgraff Tire Company. He had parked at that very same spot for four years to watch the parade. This year would be different though. He paid the owner $10 for the spot and sat there all night, planning an atrocity. Two days later would be the Battle of Flowers Parade. It was said to be the perfect day for a parade too, but most remember it being a bit humid and hot and cloudless. The spectators passed the time visiting the hundred brisket and beer booths, some of the women holding umbrellas against the sun. If you want a prime spot to view the parade, 
No doubt you have to get there before the sun rises, if not the day before. Most people stood, not wanting to sit on the hot metal chairs until they heard the first faint sounds of the lead high school band marching toward the Pearl Brewery near Grayson Street. That sound would signal the parade had begun, which was at 1 p.m. Several thousand people lined the downtown streets, from babies in strollers to the elderly made their way to watch a tradition older than any of them. At some point, Atterbury was preparing, removing plugs from shotguns to fit more shells inside, loading dozens of handguns and rifles, and armoring the walls of his Winnebago with rolls of paper towels. Amelia Castillo was preparing too, making sandwiches for her family for the long day ahead. The 47-year-old mother of 13 would go to the parade with her daughter-in-law Jane, two nieces, and three daughters. Amelia found the perfect spot in front of a Winnebago parked at a tire shop. Somebody offered her their seats when they were leaving early. The spot would provide shade which would benefit no matter how hot it was that day. Across the street, nine-year-old TJ Lapping begged his mother Kathy to move in front of the Winnebago. He was hot and wanted to sit in the shade, but she told him no. They were attending their first Battle of Flowers parade that day with friends of Kathy's from out of town. Ida Jean Dollard and her family were in attendance too. Her little brother Perry and her boyfriend Charles Alexander Long were hoping to celebrate their birthdays the next day. There wouldn't even be a cake that year though. Ida Jean was 27 years old and a mother to seven-year-old Keisha and six-month-old Charles. Ida, her boyfriend Charles, and brother Perry arrived early to get a good viewing spot right next to the Winnebago. A patrolman, Tommy Cavazos, stood in a bus parked on East Grayson Street, joking with the daughters of the Republic of Texas who wore ribbons in their hair. He planned to escort them to the Alamo after the parade. Lieutenant Gary Nagy stood in the middle of the intersection talking with officers and an organizer of the parade, as you could tell by her bright yellow hat. Lieutenant Nagy was tasked to escort her in a patrol car to the Alamo as well, but he'd never get the chance. His wife, son, and daughter were also with him, waiting for the parade to start. Soon, a butane heater and a hot dog stand exploded, causing a stir and confusion, but no one was hurt, and it's claimed to only have been an accident. Then, something started popping. Atterbury shouting traitor, traitor as he fired from within the motorhome, shot 47-year-old Emilia Castillo in the back with a high-powered rifle. Sitting directly in front of the green and white Winnebago, her and her children were Atterbury's first targets. Or at the very least, they were in the way. Emilia laid on the ground and told her children to pray. They remember hearing her praying until she went silent. 14-year-old Yvonne Castillo crawled from her mother to hide under the motorhome. She was burned when the gas tank ruptured during the firefight. Lieutenant Nagy thought someone was tossing firecrackers at him 
as he had his head on a swivel trying to figure out what was going on. He claims he felt no pain, only the sensation of something slamming into his legs. He turned to his fellow officers. All of them were gone. Lieutenant Nagy watched, almost in slow motion, a ring of smoke drift toward him. It hit him right in the chest. He tried to take a step, but fell quickly onto Broadway Street. Four other officers lay on the ground and moved out of the line of fire as quickly as they could. All had been hit with shotgun pellets. They were Lieutenant Robert Maldonado, Sergeant Louis Grassmuck, Sergeant Thomas Baker, and Inspector Elroy Crenwelge. The only one who couldn't move was Sergeant Ben Donahoe. Donahoe had been hit all over. He ended up lying in the middle of the intersection for a good five minutes, but it seemed like forever. Atterbury stood right in front of the door and could have finished him off if he had wanted to. At this point, panic quickly rose and most didn't know where the shooter was. And as the shooting started, Ida Jean ran for the children but she ran right toward the Winnebago and Atterbury shot her in the face. He would shoot her twice more as she bled to death on the street. Little brother Perry mustered up all the courage he had, grabbed Keisha and ran. The pair was pushed along by the crowd, not knowing where they were going or what was really happening. They made their way to Alamo Street where they gratefully found Charles, who knew of Ida Jean's fate. He made the dreaded phone call to Ida's mom, informing her of what happened. For about 30 minutes, Atterbury stood in the doorway of his Winnebago and turned a day reserved for citywide joy into one of sudden terror. People scattered, children were pulled to safety and fear. Kathy Lapping didn't hesitate to protect her son. She fell on top of TJ trying her best to shield him from the barrage of gunfire upon them after being shot in the neck. The blood was flowing into her son's blonde hair. Their picture donned the front page of the San Antonio Express News and several other papers nationwide. Stay down, she told him. Don't lift your head. TJ then saw an unidentified woman running into the motorhome to escape the gunfire. She immediately ran out and fell on her face. At one point, it was believed that the sniper was on the freeway overpass. Minutes later, a firefighter taking pictures from the roof of a nearby building was nearly mistaken for the sniper. Then, someone screamed, he's in the Winnebago. Jane Castillo, who was four months pregnant, pulled eight-year-old Cecilia to the ground. They were lying in front of the Winnebago, stomach to stomach. Cecilia saw granules of cotton candy in her sister-in-law's sunglasses. She saw her own right hand covered with blood and couldn't understand what that meant as she crawled away. On the roof of the tire shop, police shot tear gas at the Winnebago. Some of it landed on the street and the rest filled the cabin within. Cecilia crawled alone through the fog toward a cluster of men. They were huddling together, seeking to help one another. Please, she begged them, please let me in. 
A man stepped aside, but she noticed the blood on his hands. She panicked and kept moving. She crawled through the gas, behind the motorhome, and onto a grassy embankment, where she finally started to feel the damage of the moments previous. When Jane landed on Cecilia, trying to protect her, the impact punctured the young girl's lung. She felt her esophagus close up. Patrolman Tommy Cavazos jumped off the bus and ran toward the gunshots without hesitation. The man in the motorhome was firing another rifle. Two women lay dead in front of the RV, Emilia Castillo and Ida Jean Dollard. Lieutenant Nagy was on the ground crawling across the pavement. Behind him, his wife and children had also been shot. The shotgun pellets intended for him sprayed out and hit his family standing next to him. His wife was hit in the chest, his son in the foot, and his daughter in the leg. A patrol officer dragged Lieutenant Nagy behind a jeep. Another officer carried his children to safety. But Lieutenant Nagy's wife was a nurse. Pellets in her chest, she ran towards the officer, spraying antiseptic on their wounds. Another officer, James Middleton, reversed the police car across the intersection. Firing at the motorhome, Middleton braked in the middle of the street, pulled Sergeant Donahoe into the car, and sped away to safety. Officer Middleton's actions would save Sergeant Donahue's life that day, and probably many others, because his car gave people a chance to escape Atterbury's line of fire. The heroic act would finally be rewarded 28 years later, when he received the police department's highest award, the Medal of Valor. He would say that day that anybody would have done the same thing. I was just the first one there. As that happened, TJ lay beneath his mother. They were low, but shots popped all around them. A man was crawling toward them. He was a firefighter. Stay on the ground, he said, let's go. His arm over them, he led Kathy and TJ to safety. Cecilia couldn't breathe. She was rolling in the grass, clutching at her throat. Thirty years later, she would remember an officer dressed completely in white, crouching over her and cleaning the shotgun wound on her hand. And thankfully, she could breathe again. We've got to go back there and get my mom, she told the officer. My mom is over there. Your mom is okay, the officer said. She's with us, he told her, as he carried Cecilia to an ambulance. Cecilia would later realize the man was not a man. He was an angel. Patrolman Cavazos was in the intersection, taking cover behind a door of a van. The shooting had stopped, and through the doorway of the motorhome, he saw the gunman. Atterbury was wrestling with his rifle, trying to free the clip and reload it. Cavazos knew the moment they desperately needed had arrived. The rifle had jammed. Atterbury, shirtless and unrelenting, stood on the top step of the motorhome and looked right at Cavazos. Cavazos knew what the gunman's eyes told him. You're next. Cavazos raised his service weapon and fired twice as he had been trained to do. Everything went quiet. There were no more shots from within the Winnebago. 
10 minutes after what Gavassos to this day believes was the kill shot, the SWAT team arrived. The first to go in was always getting laughs from other cops because everywhere he went, he hauled a bag with a shotgun and a gas mask. He was always prepared, and this day, no one was laughing. The officer crawled inside, followed by two officers as the Winnebago was filled with tear gas. Through the haze, he saw about a dozen loaded handguns lying on a bed, at least 20 rifles lined up against a wall, and stacks of grocery bags filled with ammunition, but no gunmen. Someone had drawn a curtain across the middle of the room. A voice told him to shoot if the curtain moved. A breeze rustled the curtain, so two of the officers fired their shotguns. The curtain was shredded, and there they saw Atterbury, dead on the floor. A medical examiner would later rule that he had fired a bullet into his own head, but one of the SWAT officers doubted this. Decades later, he still believed that Cavazos had fired the mortal shot, but the officer couldn't be sure. It was over in 90 minutes, maybe less. When the officer gave the thumbs up coming out of the Winnebago, a lot of people started rushing the Winnebago, trying to get a better look. And then a loud cheer went up from the crowd when police emerged from the trailer carrying Atterbury's body. Then the cheers were followed by some angry shouts when the authorities announced that the parade had been canceled. Other festivities continued that night. You can't stop Fiesta. Outside the motorhome though, TJ watched officials as they carried out the gunman's body. His mom Kathy was okay as the bullet had barely missed an artery in her neck. An eighth of an inch, they said. The aftermath had the city shook. Pictures of overturned lawn chairs, kicked over ice chests, and blood on the streets. Fiesta queens were seen walking down the streets in tears in their glamoured gowns. Atterbury planned and implemented the Battle of Flowers Parade atrocity well before mass shootings became a thing in the United States. Two people lost their lives, and no less than 50 others suffered injuries, a dozen kids among them. Still, authorities stated that the Fiesta sniper incident could have been much worse. Those who witnessed the horrors of that day, though, will never forget. A few days later, the Emmy reported that Ira Atterbury had high amounts of PCP in his system. The pills he was supposed to be taking, Thorazine, had been almost full in 19 different pill containers inside his motorhome. To this day, the only motive they can claim was he had an agenda against the police and everybody else was just an unfortunate victim. Since then though, the landscape on Broadway and East Grayson Street has changed. The Burgraff Tower Shop was torn down in 1997 and development has occurred all around. Sergeant Ben Donahoe survived but underwent numerous surgeries, still having more than a hundred pellets in his body. 
Physically, he would never be the same again. He also blamed himself for the deaths of Amelia and Ida Jean. That he should have hit Atterbury when he shot and missed while lying on the ground in pain. He did realize, however, that he did all he could that day. For Kathy and TJ, life would never be the same. Shortly after her name was published in the papers, Kathy was bombarded with prank phone calls and TJ wouldn't even stand in front of windows, let alone go to another parade. The day tormented them for years. And imagine her friends, who were visiting San Antonio, having this happen. Wonder if they ever came back. TJ grew up though, and almost 20 years later, decided to go back to the Battle of Flowers Parade for the first time since. He was joined by his wife and child, hoping to make new memories. Ida Jean's family was hurting over their loss. Her baby brother Perry suffered nightmares reliving the experience night after night. The responsibilities laid on her mama, Mrs. Hazel Brown. Ida was a hard-working single mother who had so much left to do. Amelia's family would say the same about her. The older kids would take on the responsibilities of the youngers in their family. Two wonderful mothers taken too soon by a madman with a gun. He tried to kill and hurt as many as he could that day. He tried to ruin a beloved tradition this city had known for almost 120 years then, and now over 160 years. But he failed. I learned of this day many years ago, but I never knew how close I came to not even being here. If it wasn't for the fact that my mama is so bad with directions, she and my Thea were supposed to be right at that corner watching the parade. Ice chests in hand, both pushing strollers carrying my two-year-old sister and cousin down Broadway at 1 p.m. They were stopped a few blocks away and told to go back. Someone's shooting, they said. Crazy. It's amazing how the officers that day reacted. None of them had experience in this. None of them were trained for this. And yet, none of them ran away. It's amazing how so many people came to the aid of others. The video footage the reporters and crew captured was intense. While so many people were running away, they were running towards the gunfire. I think I'm just impressed by so many people in this story, from little Cecilia, to Kathy, to all of the officers who put their lives on the line. This could have been so much worse. And this episode is going to be dropping on this year's Battle of Flowers Parade. I didn't want to bring up terrible memories for people and literal pain for others. I wanted to show that we as a city did not break because of what happened. I think we should remember this day every year, not for what happened or what Atterbury tried to destroy, but for the people who put their lives on the line, for those who continue to go back year after year and support the parade, and for Amelia and Ida Jean. And that's our story. I hope you take some time today 
or over the next week to celebrate. And Viva Fiesta. If you're a fan of the show, show your love with a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to help us grow. Let me know your thoughts on Instagram at True Crime San Antonio. Would love to hear from you. Truly. This has been True Crime San Antonio, and I am just another San Antonio native, hoping to see us through. Take care.